welcome adventurer to the Level Up Board Game Podcast, a show that uses your experiences and opinions to discuss board games and the gaming community. Join the heroes as they conquer perils such as meeples, cards, and miniatures, all in an effort to level up. You're listening to the Level Up Board Game Podcast. Well, Scott, this is it, the last episode of our first year as a show, and it is stuffed with gaming goodness and some season one wrap-up. Woohoo! And as always, we had to hold our shield steady for our recent adventures, including On Mars, Papillon, Tiny Epic Dinosaurs, and a little more dinosaur goodness we'll get into later. Now, our feature quest is the 8-bit breakdown of Cape May. And being the end of Season 1, we will be taking a look back at last year's review game, our very first, Shadows Over Camelot. Oh yeah. Archmage Andrew joins the party for the best 10 minutes of the show, The Academy. Oh my goodness, I love The Academy. And hey, stick around as we're going to talk about our first year of a show and what we anticipate sort of moving forward into next year. But before finally closing out the show, we're going to have our personal top 10 of the games that we reviewed this year. And that's when the fighting breaks out. <laughs> right. Hey, adventurers, <laughs> welcome to the show. My name's Patrick. This is Scott here. And what do we have going on lately, Scott? Oh, we've had all sorts of things here. Coming up on the end of the year, I think a lot of people are looking at things like, hey, we didn't get enough gaming in. We need to uh, get out and see people and do all this stuff. So what better way to do that than, oh, I don't know. Let's have a meetup. Yeah. Back to Black Lotus Pizza we went. I want to say we had 25 people. There were 23 tickets, and I didn't give one to uh, to you. Tickets for a, for a giveaway. We, that's that's what we yes. do. We don't charge for it, but uh, it was uh, 23 tickets plus there was you and me. So I think there were 25 people stuffed in that place. Tons of excellent. I mean, well, you had the Black Lotus burger, didn't you? No, I had the pizza. The pizza was great. You did the uh, pizza. Mike had the burger. It had a black garlic aioli, and I don't even know what that means. What's aioli? <laughs> it's, it's like a uh, mayonnaise type of thing, I think. <laughs> hey, we had something folks like taking Anyway, home, it's uh, good. Fireball Island. We had a giveaway for uh, Fireball Island. We gave out some Keyforge, Santorini. How about this? Mike Clark, designer of Breakneck Derby. He's a Pittsburgh local. He was there. He got to show off his game a couple times, and he threw it into the giveaways, too. It was the first one selected. I don't know if you saw this, but the girl that, uh, that grabbed the game, she got it signed. He signed it for her. Oh, I saw it, and the artist was there as well, too, so he signed Is it, that too. I wasn't sure. He did all the art. Yes, uh, yes. I feel like, and I hey, I've got to say, Mike was super, super friendly. Great guy. I mean, he gave out one of those games there, gave us a copy so he could go over and take a look at and possibly review later on. Plus, he gave a copy to the store. Yeah. I mean, Mike is really super generous. So happy to have him there. So, you know, I don't play too many video games, but something like 10 or 15 years ago now, when it was actually out and relevant, I was working at the bank, had a week's vacation, and it was like the first time in my life that I ever had a week's paid vacation. I spent the entire week playing a game on Xbox called Borderlands. They've got a board game coming out. It's going to be live on Kickstarter. We're talking about it next week on Thursday Adventures. Tune in. We're going to talk Borderlands, the board game with the designers. This is going to be freaking awesome. Want to talk some recent plays, Scott? And that sounds good to me. You want to take it away? You know what I did last time? I'm, I'm going to let you have the floor this time. Very good. 
We did Tiny Epic Pirates last show. Yeah. And this time we're doing Tiny Epic Dinosaurs. Hmm. Now, this was released in 2020, designed by, once again, Scott Alms, and published by Gameling Games. In Tiny Epic Dinosaurs, it's a little bit different. You aren't setting up a park like so many of the dinosaur games that are out there right now. What you're doing is you're kind of a farm that's getting the dinosaurs ready for people to buy to take to their park. Oh, So you have ranchers that are taking care of the dinosaurs. You're setting up different barriers for the dinosaurs to live and thrive and eat and all this wonderful stuff. You have at least 20 different meeples that are each individual dinosaurs. They're all differently shaped, different looks to all of them. Oh, yeah. Plus, on top of that, you have about 16 stegosaurus. 16 Velociraptors, 16 Allosauruses, and 16 Brachiosauruses. Not adding on the 20 different miniature or meeples for your ranchers, plus the meat and the leaves and the barriers, all this stuff in this box. It is incredible how much they crammed into this box. But before I go any further, the whole idea of this game is you want to breed and get dinosaurs to sell to different dinosaur parks. You're going to start off with each turn, you're going to collect resources. So it's important you collect resources in order to feed your dinosaurs. Your meatosauruses, of course, they need meat. Your leafosauruses, (laughs) they need leaves and uh, vegetation. That's actually what they call them in the game, huh? No, no. Oh, okay. (laughs) If you look it up, I mean, it's it's a uh, secret thing here that not many people know. They were actually known as metasauruses and leafosauruses mm. before they went on with calling them carnivorous and um, whatever the herbivores thing is. That's it. I couldn't think of the word. Next, you then take your ranchers and you place them on one of four different panels that you can put your players on, mm-hmm. depending on what you want to do. You can purchase eggs and have dinosaurs. You can purchase food. You can purchase barriers. Purchase contracts in order to fill contracts for different companies that want dinosaurs. Or, my favorite part, you can go out and get a free-range dinosaur. Oh, That's where the tricky part comes in here. Because you go out, you say, I want an Allosaurus. All right. You put your player down there. You grab an Allosaurus. You put it right next to you. You then roll a die. The die has three different symbols on it. One is a net. You get that? Fine. You got the dinosaur. You roll an egg. Well, you ended up that you're going to get two dinosaurs because someone was getting lucky. Or you can then roll one that has three scratch marks on it. Well, that's basically like whenever you pick up a cat when it's eating and it doesn't want to be picked up. (laughs) Three scratch marks is never a good thing. No, 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 no. So you end up going to medical leave. Your rancher goes to medical leave along with the dinosaur. Now, it's not all that bad because at the end of the term, you get everything back. The dinosaur goes into its bins. You go back out and the rancher's ready to go out again the next day and get some more dinosaurs. Let me ask you a question. You said you put your guy down. Is this like worker placement or or do you have your own tableau to, to pick your actions? Are we competing for these spots? We are definitely competing for these spots. Okay. You have four different ranchers, and then you have a supervisor. So the supervisor is a meeple a little bit bigger than the rest of them. That will count as two ranchers. So you put uh, one of your ranchers down on, you want to get a brachiosaurus. Mm -hmm. All right. You put it out there. 
The next person comes around, you know what, I really need a bronchiosaurus to finish up that contract. I'm going to put a rancher there. But in order to do that, you have to put one more on top of that in order to take that spot. And the first person still gets it. Oh, okay. But you have to pay extra in order to go on and after someone else. So like a less efficient play in order to get what you want. That makes sense. Exactly. Or you can use your supervisor, which counts as two, count and as put double. him there. Can I use a supervisor? Like say that there's already three workers on there. Could I use the supervisor and then stack two more meeples on top and be like, okay, there's four. So I get to take it too. You could do that, but that would be a very, very poor play. Yeah, I can imagine. Because you'd only get about two turns that turn. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe near the end of the game you want to do that, but not really recommended. Makes sense. Whenever you get the dinosaurs, you then have to move them into your ranch. The important thing here is, once again, you can't put the veggie sources with the meat sources. So you have to build barriers. You can use barriers that you buy. Or there are natural barriers on your ranch card that you have. An ocean, a river, mountains, Mm -hmm. different things like that that can add up to be uh, a barrier. If it happens that you don't have the whole thing blocked off, there's a chance of them running away. Once you get the dinosaurs put on your ranch, you need to feed them. Mm -hmm. You have your resources on your main player card where you keep your dinosaurs before they go into the ranch and keep your workers. So you have a track for meat, for vegetables, and for crates of supplies. For each one of your dinosaurs, they have a different menu. Your allosauruses will eat two meat each. Your stegosauruses, they'll eat one leaf each. So you have to go through and remove from your resources the amount of resources needed to feed your dinosaurs. And you're getting more from these action selection spaces, I presume. Exactly. Okay. If you do not have enough to feed your dinosaurs or have an open area where the barrier doesn't cover, your dinosaurs are going to escape. If your metasaurs escape, they're going to eat another dinosaur. There's no way about it. So... Your Velociraptor is going to eat one of your Stegosaurus and then take off. So you lose two dinosaurs. (laughs) He gets a snack on the way out the door. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Hey. So the other thing also is that if a herbivore needs to escape, it's going to escape. But since they're a little bit big, a little huskier, they're just going to take out a barrier. So they're going to remove a barrier that you already have set up. So then you have to rebuild on the next turn around. So we've got a negative impact here if a dinosaur escapes. We do not want to have that happen. I would imagine no. it's the kind of game where if you're playing right, you're playing with your barriers and with enough resources to feed them so that that doesn't happen. Exactly. So there's a lot of planning going on here as far as making sure you have enough resources, making sure you have the dinosaurs needed to fill your contracts, and making sure you have enough resources to feed your dinosaurs mm-hmm. then as well. The people I played with, they thoroughly enjoyed it. I know that Lana, (laughs) she posted on Facebook once again after Pirates. She went out and bought Pirates. After this, she went out and bought Tiny Epic Dinosaurs. So I think I've made another Tiny Epic junkie uh, in the world here. Gameling Games, uh, in case you need somebody, uh, (laughs) call us here. Once again, it's a fun game. Whenever you play Tiny Epic Games, you're going to get a good experience out of it. And you're going to get bigger than what you expect but not as big as you might want. They tend not to overstay their welcome. That's for sure. Speaking of which, how long is a game of Tiny Epic Dinosaurs? Uh, You could probably play a whole game of it in, I would say, maybe 45 minutes. You said kind of easy to learn, or do you think maybe uh, it's going to take a round or two? 
I would say maybe one or two rounds at the very most, but the nice thing about it is the round track that they have where you move, <laughs> I love this here, they had to take this from Jurassic Park, they took Samuel L. Jackson's coffee mug, and that is your turn tracker, so it says, I love dinos on it. <laughs> Each time you move it down, it has a nice explanation as to what exactly goes on during that round, so it will explain everything well. Your ranch card has all the information you could possibly want on there as well. They do a great job of making sure that all the stuff that you need is pretty much right there. You may have to refer back to the rule book once or twice just to uh, make sure of any small little details you may have missed. All right, let's talk the luck and strategy scale. One being it's all luck and 10 being it's all strategy. Where are you putting this one? Definitely more on the strategy side because you have to plan to make sure that you have enough of the resources you need. Mm -hmm. The luck comes in whenever you're going out for the free-range oh, dinosaurs. Like rolling the die, sure. Exactly. But other than that, this is really a lot of planning. You have to plan where you have your barriers. You have to make sure that uh, – one other thing I skipped here as well is whenever you feed the dinosaurs, mm -hmm. if you have two of the same dinosaurs in the same area, well, they are going to <laughs> breed. So you're going to have another dinosaur that you need to take care of. So if you build up that barrier to only fit those two dinosaurs, uh, that third one's going to come around and it's not going to have any room, so it's going to escape. So it's important to plan and make sure that you don't think of plans bigger than what your ranch can handle. Scott, this is a time in gaming where we have Dinosaur Island, Dinosaur World, Tiny Epic Dinosaurs, God's Love Dinosaurs, The Great Dinosaur Rush, Dinosaur Tea Party, and of course, 1993's Dinosaur Chess. This is a theme that's pretty crowded. Do you think Dinosaur, uh, Tiny Epic Dinosaurs stands out? Do you think this is, is going to be in the, the, the front of this genre or this theme, I should say? I think it's probably in with the also-rans. It takes a little bit of a different look to things where you are supplying the dinosaurs. You aren't building a dinosaur park, if you will. Mm -hmm. But then again, stop and take a look. For a while there, everything was pirates. Everything was zombies. Yep. Everything has its moment in the sun that it Vikings. goes through. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I mean, I'm thinking right now we're probably on the downside of dinosaurs getting into uh, my next game I'll be talking about here, but. It's still a popular subject to make a game on. Sure. I mean, everyone loves dinosaurs. It's one of those things. I mean, whenever you go to Natural History Museum, you want to go see the dinosaurs. That's the draw. I wouldn't go if they didn't have them. Exactly. <laughs> well, fantastic. That is Tiny Epic Dinosaurs. Hey there. This is Cody Miller from Far Off Games. Here's to another year of leveling up. All right. You played... Papillon. Mm, close. Is that correct? Close. That's what, Papillon? you know what, I had to look it up. Uh, Papillon. It is, uh, it's French, I understand. Papillon. P-A-P-I-L-L-O-N. That is a tremendous movie as well. I didn't know it was a movie until I looked into how to pronounce it. This was designed by J.B. Howell, published by Colossal Games in 2020. And it turns out, Papillon is French for butterfly. I found out also that it's a small dog breed and, like you said, a 2017 movie about a safecracker from the Parisian underworld who was framed for murder and attempts to regain his freedom. Rotten Tomatoes audience score, a 66. Such a good movie. 
Well, this is a tile placement game with a theme of tending a garden. Now, at its core, there's a bidding system for tiles coupled with acquiring these tiles according to your bid. And then finally, placing the tiles in your own play area to match flower types, similar to like making a city in Carcassonne. And in doing so, you get to place butterflies on these little 3D flower plants that you're going to construct out of cardboard, which have a big impact in scoring based on majorities. It's kind of nice that the tile placement's not all that restricting in this game. So long as the sides of the tiles match, you can build out basically in any direction that you want. The Meat and Taters of Gameplay revolves around bidding for and acquiring the garden tiles as stated. So, Scott, picture a main board with four rows of tiles across top, and then three, All right. and then two, and then one. So it kind of makes like a triangle, right? Okay. You have caterpillars to bid. Everybody starts the game with five caterpillars. I mean, really, you could call it a coin, whatever, but for theme's sake, they're, they're caterpillars. and even got little wood-like laser-cut caterpillars to bid. <laughs> you're going to bid those to determine the draft order of the tiles. So one at a time, you're going to bid similar to um, five tribes. Five tribes is a bidding system. Mm -hmm. When you draft them, you get to pick either an entire row or an entire column. So if you're selecting first, you'll most likely end up with four tiles. You're going to pick the, the row of four at the very top or the column of four on the far left. Whereas later in the draft, for your third, for example, you're going to get fewer. And there are plenty of ways to get more caterpillars in the game, including bidding zero. When it's t time to bid caterpillars, if you're out or you just don't have a row that you super duper like or somebody let off the bid with five caterpillars, you're like, well, I'm not going to be first. You could bid zero and get a bonus caterpillar. Someone else can Ooh. bid zero as well. And they actually go behind you. They get Two bonus caterpillars. Once you get your tiles, you place them into your garden. Pretty simple. If you complete a flower bed, you get to place a butterfly. Now, this is easy. You know how in Carcassonne you complete a city whenever it's enclosed, right? Right. In Papillon, you complete a flower bed when there are no more open borders. So basically the same thing. In doing so, let's say you complete a flower bed of red flowers, you get to place a butterfly onto a red flower for scoring. It gives a lot of points for whoever gets the most on there by the end of the game, and then fewer for the second most butterflies, and then even less so for third most butterflies on that bush. And there's two of these red flowers to place on. Likewise for the other colors in the game. So there's some reason to spread your butterflies out or to perhaps have some competition over control for one of them. It's got these butterflies. They're tiny little like clothespins with okay, a butterfly yeah, on the top. Um, so take a look here. Yeah, yeah, you pinch it and then you've put it on the 3D bush, it, you know, the cardboard constructed bush. So you have all these little butterflies. It's actually got a really nice table presence. Anywho, at the end of the game, you're going to tally up your points based on who has how many butterflies on which bushes, and you're going to get some extra points for large sections of your garden, and the high score wins. It looks like a fun little puzzle game. My biggest question is, what are the flower beds like? I look at it that, yeah, it has a nice table presence, mm -hmm. but are the flowers that you put the butterflies on, are they sturdy enough for uh, repeated play? Yeah, I think they're going to hold up well over time. The The one component that I thought, oh, this this might not hold up quite so well are those little butterflies with the tiny little clips. Uh, oh. <laughs> I mean, okay, let's let's just talk art and components. I think that's the gist here. This uh, The box looks really nice. So it's inviting from the get-go. But I will say the main board and the tiles, they were honestly 
pretty bland. Like, I would have guessed that this game was from 2005. That said, those plants like you're asking about, they're on that 3D constructed cardboard. Uh, everything looks really nice. You can actually clip your butterflies onto the bush. But I will say, the butterflies that are clipped onto the bushes, sometimes they're kind of obstructed from your view. So you have to like get up and check. You know what I mean? Like we had four people around the table mm-hmm. and there's eight of these bushes. So the one that's far from me, if somebody clips on oh, the wow. side that I'm not looking at or that's opposite of my direct eyesight, I don't know that it's there. I got to get up and, and look or I got to be asking all the time. And those butterflies are really cute, but the clothespins are tiny. I mean, like it was like a little dexterity game for me trying to clip them onto the bushes. <laughs> so it was kind of form over function, but the form was really nice. Who would this game be for? Who do you think would really be drawn to this game? Well, it's actually a a pretty low-complexity game with some hidden depth to it. Um, I mean, it's definitely – there's a way to play optimally, particularly around optimizing your bids. That's that's where the majority of the thinky part of the game comes. If you're the last player to bid, you might be able to go first for five caterpillars or second for just one. Or you might be able to go last and gain a caterpillar or two for doing so. And they have tiles that are going to give you bonuses with caterpillars. uh, Like you place the tile in that bidding area and it's got a little caterpillar emblem. So there's a lot of time where you're going to have to place value on, on your bid. Plus, you do get to place bonus butterflies from time to time if you play an extra large section. Let's say like in Carcassonne, you enclose a city. Most of the time in this, if you're enclosing any flower garden, typically it's two you know, two tiles and, oh, good, Mm -hmm. I get to place a butterfly. But if you can enclose a larger one and you're the first to play in a bush, you can get an extra. So there is some some extra, I don't want to say like niche rules because it's not something that you have to remember when you play. But I think all in all, though, the game is pretty simple. And I think you could break this out with kids, say 10 and up, and they're going to do all right with it. It seems like this would be a good dessert game instead of a main course game? Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. It's probably not the game that you're having your buddies over to play. Uh, you know, like this guy's this day, that's when we're going to be playing Papillon. But it is one that, well, you know, when you finish your big game or you're still waiting to play it or everyone's grabbing their snack, it's a great one to throw down. I, that sounds really kind of cool there. I mean, I'm going to have to check this game out here. That I love the table presence that it mm-hmm. has. Now, is this a game that you'd be adding to your collection? Uh, I guess the best way to put it would be that I liked it enough that I wouldn't turn down a play, but it wouldn't be my first option. You know, it wouldn't be one that I'm suggesting for saying I'm not adding it to my collection. It doesn't make it a bad game. It just didn't do anything to excite me. It wasn't boring. It's just that so many mm-hmm. games scream my name that Papillon, it's going to have a hard time coming down from the shelf. For that matter, we have countless themes in our board game selection. And I mean, flower beds and butterflies just don't get me all juiced up. No, not helping the cause for Papillon is that it suddenly finds itself in this genre of board games uh, that, that's growing seemingly every second. That being like a medium light, kind of mm-hmm. low interaction, subtle interactions, in this case, the bidding system and, and the placement on the bushes with charming themes. And a lot of those do stand out for me, it, it, like Dog Park, for example. But Papillon just didn't didn't stand out, didn't grab me and shake me by the <laughs> by my imaginary suspenders. Unlike other butterfly games, you just think that they just grab a hold of you and shake you. <laughs> like Mari Pos- You know what? I There's Papillon, there's Mari Postas. I was like, well, there's got to be a, a, actu- a game actually called Butterflies. And I think there is. It was from like 97. That's as far as I got into uh, to researching that. Hey, it's Eric McCoy from Doomlings. Here's to another year of leveling up. 
In fact, here's to another 50 years. You hear that, guys? They've promised 50 more years of level up. So, uh, good luck. Happy New Year. Scott, you kind of had a themed week here. I see another dinosaur game on the list. Yes, it definitely did uh, seem like a themed week. I also got in a game of Dinosaur Island. Roar! And right. And yes, I did talk to the designers. <laughs> that is the correct way of saying it. Roar! And right. This was designed by Brian Lewis, David McGregor, and Marissa Masura. And it's published by Pandasaurus Games, and it came out in 2021. This is, once again, this popular genre here of the roll-and-write games, of other games that are available. Boy, they took two of the most popular things they could and clashed. What's the popular theme? Dinosaurs. What's a popular type of game? Roll-and-write. Boom. Got to be a smash success. Tell us about it. Dinosaur Island Roar and Write is, of course, a shorter version of the popular Dinosaur Island. Now, I've played Dinosaur Island before, but there was just something that made me lose interest in that before the game was over. I played it, I got about three quarters of the way through, and I found my mind wandering a little Overstate bit. Overstate its welcome a little for you. Yeah, just a little bit there. And uh, I and I hate to say it, but it also had to do with a person that I was playing with that really got salty because they made one bad move <laughs> and it just made them angry at themselves and they were really good for giving out self-abuse to themselves out loud for the rest of the game put you on tilt Woo! but this one hits a nice spot it's just long enough it has enough in it to make it interesting first of all the dice those dice from dinosaur island are great they're big chunky dice Whenever you roll them, you know you're rolling the dice. It's just great. It's a great part of the game. But this time, you're drawing a map of your dinosaur park. That is what I think I really enjoyed the most about this. It didn't overstay its welcome. We played in maybe about an hour. But you still have the ability to put in attractions in your park and hire staff and different specialists. But I think it's the physical pads that you take with you afterwards. You can look at your park that you made. And you put in your food stands, your attractions, your dinosaur paddocks, and they all have to line up with a road that goes through it. So just like Jurassic Park, you get to run your park, start your Jeep in the top of the park and go right down through the roads and go through everything. So you want to make sure that you do this in the most efficient way that your Jeep can go through and hit all the different places throughout your park. That's how you're trying to to write in the... Rolling right. Exactly. Okay, got it. The pads are labeled very well. And yes, I did say pads. You get two sheets with this. Mm-hmm. So that's a big change right there. You start at number one on here because they're labeled very, very well, similar to Tiny Epic Dinosaurs to the order that you need to play things. So the pads have number one, number two, number three. You just follow that right on through and finish each one of your turns. Okay. You have to be careful because a lot of times you can put in too much excitement, but if you don't have the security there, well, some uh, shady things could happen there. So Wait, you could go You got to elaborate on that for me. The whole thing here, it's not really the, the whole thing with Dinosaur Island. Whenever you reach in, you grab out a number of tourists that come into your park and see the hoodlums that go in. 
you just have to track how excitement affects your park. Okay. Is this a super exciting park or is it a eh, uh, meh park? Once the excitement builds, you have to make sure that you have security in place to cover that. Okay. So each one of your attractions that you put in there, there will be a certain amount of danger that comes along with it. So you want to make sure that whenever you're marking down, you have little circles that you mark down on the excitement level mm-hmm. on one of your pads. You have to have a security officer for each one of those. So you have to make sure that you temper the excitement with safety. So that's very, very important. Or your lawyer is going to be very busy with some lawsuits going on with kids losing their hands, you know, typical childhood stuff. The thing I like about this was there are few cards used in the game. I think there are six that you use for each game, but there are a lot of cards that you can choose from. So there's a lot of replayability to this. It was fun. It scratched the itch of what I wanted. This one here is the Dinosaur Island game that I would gravitate to before the main Dinosaur Island game, actually. How long does this take? We played it in just about an hour, and that was with going through and learning all the things and a bunch of questions. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't long. It didn't overstay its welcome. So it was just, it. like I said, it just hit the sweet spot of what I wanted in the game. How many players can it hold? The number of players that this fits is one, which that seems to be a big thing here. I mean, you have a lot of solo players since COVID came and everything, and a lot of companies are going for this. And it can go up to four. So it's one of those ones that some roll and rights you do get kind of out of hand where you roll and you can play one to 99 people. This one keeps it to a nice, simple amount there with one to four players. So this is one that I could definitely play back to back and still enjoy. So it sounds like one that you would recommend. Who for? Who's going to like this game? If you've played the main one, you can jump into this quickly and it's enjoyable it scratches the itch of playing that game instead of getting out all the stuff to play. When you're a new player and you take a look at this, everything's labeled one, two, three, four, five, on through to the uh, the last number, I think seven or eight. Mm-hmm. So you can go through and look sequentially how you need to take care of your, uh, your park and play the game. Well, it sounds like a good time. I haven't played it yet. Maybe uh, I would say this Thursday, but uh, we won't be meeting up this yeah, Thursday. Yeah, we're recording going. well ahead yeah. of Thanksgiving. But uh, yeah, no, I'd love to give that a try. I haven't played many rolling rights. That's an area of gaming that I've never really been like, oh, I want to I want to dig into that. It, it just never really appealed to me. But this is sounding like a good old time. Maybe we'll this is Tom's game, isn't it? Yes, it is. And I don't know. This might have to be one of my games here, too. So I enjoyed it that much. Well, that's a heck of endorsement for Dinosaur Island Roar and Write. Well done. Well done, Patrick. Hi there, adventurers. Here's Nicholas Lundström-Patrakia, the designer of Beyond the Rift. And here is to another year of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. What else have you been playing, Patrick? Oh, a good one. Okay, check this out. The rules are simple. Children are divided into two groups, the Mm -hmm. offense and the defense. Once the game starts, the defense can run around on two feet within bounds, while the offense, outside the line, is only allowed to hop on one foot. But if an attacker cuts through the waist of the squid outpacing the defense, he or she is given the freedom to walk freely on two feet. 
For whatever reason, we called that the secret inspector. Whoa, 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 whoa. You squid game me, bro? <laughs> I squid gamed you, bro. <laughs> we go from dinosaurs to something much more futuristic, I guess you could say. So you got in the game of <laughs> this beast of a game, from what I understand, on Mars. Yes, I did. First of all, before we before we get into this, I'm going to try and explain it as best as I can. And then, you know what, Scott, I just want you to ask it. Hit me with questions, and maybe I can give listeners a better idea of what's going on in On Mars. And before we get started, Ryan, who, by the way, is going to be at PAX. We're going to get to meet Ryan, and maybe even, Woo-hoo! yeah, maybe we'll get in a play with uh, a couple plays with Ryan as well. He taught me On Mars. It, I think I mentioned a few episodes ago, uh, a few nights in the learning game and then a night for a regular game. So thank you, thank you, thank you to Ryan for taking time out of your day to teach me how to play. On Mars is an Eagle Griffin game from 2020 by Vital Lacerda. Mars, similar to dinosaurs, was a red hot theme, no pun intended, in the last few years mm-hmm. and for good reason. Never mind the movies that we had surrounding the red planet. Mars doesn't need a hype train to pique our interest. It's got the tallest mountain in the solar system, Olympus Mons, calls Mars home. While formed over billions of years, recent evidence has led scientists believe that it might still be active. <laughs> the ancient Greeks called the planet Ares after their god of war. The Romans did likewise, associating the planet's blood red color with Mars, their own god of war. Interestingly, other ancient cultures also focused on color. To China's astronomers, it was the fire star, whilst Egyptian priests called on Hardashur, or the Red One. The red color Mars is known for is due to rock and dust, covering its surface being rich in iron. All right, all right, all right, all right. We're getting the history lesson here, but you're Mars still has two small the moons. Gameplay. The lovers of terraforming Mars will be familiar with them, Phobos and Deimos. They were discovered in 1877 by astronomer Asaf Hall, who named them for Latin terms fear and panic. The moons are thought to be captured steroids and are among the smallest natural satellites in the solar system. Wait, captured steroids? Did I say captured steroids? Yes. <laughs> They're captured asteroids. <laughs> You know what I did? When I typed this up, I forgot the A, or I mispunched the A. So do you want to hear about On Mars or not? Yes, let's hear about On Mars. (laughs) Okay, so where do we start with this? On Mars is a game that challenges one to four players to colonize Mars, a theme that we've seen in plenty of games to this point, but none with such precision and complexity as we're going to find in this Lacerda title. I suppose at its core, this is an action selection worker placement game, but it incorporates resource management and tile placement as well. We've got a ton of mechanisms in this game. So what exactly is going on? Let's let's break it down by a player's term, where basically you're going to take one action and then an executive action. The action that you can take requires the use of one of your workers, of which you have a handful to start with at the onset of the game. Now, further, there's two areas that house action selection. You have the space side and the Mars surface side of the game board. Think of it kind of like, Scott, you remember when we did Viticulture, you have the summer and winter sections of the board? Yes. Think of it kind of like that, if we're going to reference a title that most folks will be familiar with. Now, the action spaces on the outside of Mars in space include gathering resources, gaining blueprints, and acquiring or advancing technology tiles. Seems simple enough, right? 
Action spaces mm-hmm. on the surface are going to allow players to place their tiles onto the surface of Mars, build an advanced building onto the planet, which you got when you took a blueprint card. The surface also has spaces available to acquire scientists, contracts, or to build robots, rovers, or ships. Now it's sounding like a lot, isn't it? It really is. <laughs> At the end of each round, after each player has taken an action and potentially an executive action, the shuttle marker at the top of the board is going to advance. Now, in the early stages of the game, this means allowing players to determine whether they want to continue taking actions on the outside of Mars in space, or taking actions on the surface. Do I want to continue to take the actions over here, or do I want to be able to take the actions over there? And that shuttle, as as rounds go back and forth, will continue to hop from space to Mars, to space, to Mars. Sometimes it'll space, space, and then you have the option Mars, Mars, and then you have the option. So it is, it's going to progress as the game does so as well. Plus there's a handful of simple triggers that occur if you hop on that shuttle. Let's say that I'm performing actions in space and I want to do actions on Mars. I will actually hop on that. I'll take my little character at the top, put it on the shuttle, and then carry out the triggers for going to Mars. Points are going to come from a number of places, primarily from contracts. Those contract cards that you acquire outside of Mars, also from missions, and advancing on the colonization track, which is off to the right. Play is going to end when a number of missions have been completed as dictated by the progression of the Mars colony marker, which is on that track. Scores will be tallied, and the high score is the bee's knees, the winner. This was the most oversimplified, you're listening to a podcast version of how to play on Mars. So, Scott, I'm just going to try and keep answering questions to give us a better idea of what's going on in this game. Right. So, I'm taking a look here at the board, mm-hmm. and there is a lot of stuff going on here. I think, first of all, a lot of people have played Terraforming sure. Mars. So, where does this fall into, if Terraforming Mars is a five, where does this come in on a range of one to ten? Okay. Terraforming Mars is a five. This is... A nine. This is remarkably complex. Honestly, I gave such a watered-down description of the game. The action spaces are simple enough to understand. The only thing that's going to make the game complex from that standpoint is that there are a ton of various little restrictions and triggers that happen. So when you place a tile, the little robot – and it's a screen-printed meeple. It's actually really cute. Mm -hmm. Your robot and your rover. Whenever you take an action, that little robot has to be nearby. Oh, that's simple enough, but we just need to take an action to move that robot to get it close by. There are actions that you're going to want to take, but you can't do so until the appropriate technology tile has advanced enough to allow for it. The way that you make that happen is simple enough, so long as you are the one that's controlling that tech. Everybody's got their own little tableau, and as you select technology tiles, you then suddenly are the one in charge of determining uh, how big a, a colony size can be based on the progression of that tech. So if I have the, the, the water tech, for example, and somebody wants to build a water complex on the board of, say, four tiles interconnected, well, they can do that so long as the water technology has reached the four space. Now, if I'm the one that wants to make that complex of four tiles and I have the tech, well, I know which one I'm going to move up. But if I want to make that complex of four water tiles and my opponent has the tech and it's only at the second level, well, my opponent now has reason to not advance it any further. So I'm kind of restricted. There's some uh, some complexity on the, the interplay between the players in the game. 
The issue is that for a handful of very important actions, you need to be planning ahead from the resources that you're going to need to have to the robot's positioning, to the specific technology and where it is advanced to, to whether or not you're going to be set up to take these actions in space or on the surface of Mars. So you've got to have another little space pun. You've got to have lunar alignment for things to work out. On Mars challenges you to think many, many steps ahead, and that's going to make it difficult for new players, obviously. But even if you're experienced, once you've mapped out your next two turns in your mind, your opponent's actions or an unforeseen play that has become available puts you into position to sort of rethink and reevaluate what you had in your mind two turns ago and weigh the benefit of continuing on that path or taking the tactical action instead. It's a difficult decision, and it requires that you understand the interlocking play of the game's various puzzles. And I should point out, I didn't even touch on the ships or the additional workers, the ability to commit additional workers to get bonuses from your action spaces, the scientists, the crystals, or the use thereof, the executive actions, or how you do it, or even the contracts. All right. <laughs> There's nothing that I enjoy more whenever I get completely immersed into a mm -hmm. game and then whenever i start talking about it i can't stop talking about it. i just start throwing out terms and people look at me like what the like hell it's a whole other language about? does the complexity get in the way of the enjoyment of the game in your first playthrough for me anyway mm -hmm. it did you know it's it, it's not going to be a game that you're going to play through and learn the first time and enjoy yourself it's very much okay i'm going to try and understand how to play. For me, it was, I'm just going to take an action to see what happens. And I try and understand mm -hmm. what happens, you know, if X, then Y, if A, then B, and try and learn the language of the game, so to speak. We played it again, and this time, having an idea, okay, I know that B happens after A triggers, and I know that C is coming down the line. There are games that are enjoyable because they tell you a story, and there's games that are enjoyable because you're laughing out loud or you're standing up and shaking that big pile of dice, right? Then there are games that, like chess, if, if we can water it down to just chess, there are games that are enjoyable because you're rewarded when you think multiple steps ahead. And you really have to pre-plan and you get to then watch it all come to fruition before your eyes. Like, oh my goodness. I thought about how I was going to make it happen. It wasn't easy, but then I actually made it happen. And I guessed that my opponent was going to do this. And they actually, I was right. I correctly predicted what they were going to do. <laughs> Nobody's jumping up and down in their chair or, or, you know, pointing fingers and laughing at their buddy that just, you know, rolled a two. It's not that kind of enjoyment. It's a satisfaction in seeing a plan come to fruition. That That's what On Mars gave. Not in the first play. First play was definitely a learning game. I think the next big question here to ask you is, would this find a place in your collection? It already has. Oh, well, well. Yeah, it, it did okay. before Ryan taught me. And then I, I put that albatross on the table and it was like, I'm going to see if Ryan knows how to play before I sit down and try and <laughs> try and learn a new language on my own. Uh, it already did just because it's Lacerda and I haven't played many Lacerda games. I was like, well, like, you know, we've got to figure this one out. We're a board game podcast, right? We should be uh, turning over this stone. And uh, I'm glad I did. Maybe to answer your question, it's not leaving the collection after playing it. Oh, mm -hmm. wow. 
well, then I better get on this and learn how to play this game then as well. Absolutely. Maybe at some point next year, you know, our reviews, we tend to do like, okay, let's go light, let's go medium, let's go a little bit heavier, then let's take it back to light. Like we're trying to give different uh, complexities in our reviews. Mm -hmm. Maybe we'll make this uh, one of our heavy games for next year. I think you'd like it. Well, from the sound of it, I don't think it would come in as a light (laughs) one. (laughs) It'll be the heaviest game that we've reviewed. Okay, I look forward to it. Hey, adventurers. Today, we're going to do a walkthrough of our review game, Cape May. This came out in 2021, designed by Eric Masso and published by Thunderworks Games. In Cape May, you play an entrepreneur in America's oldest seaside resort area. In the game, you will be developing vacation homes, building businesses, and enjoying birdwatching, a favorite in Cape May, to accumulate the highest score by the end of one year, 12 months or rounds. To accomplish this goal, you start the game with $20, seven movement cards, a player board, two activity cards, and four bonus cards. Did you think it would be easy to build your empire in Cape May? To start, you will look at your four bonus cards. These cards will give you bonus points at the end of the game if you complete certain tasks. It may be have X number of businesses. Perhaps it could be having landmarks along the shore. You decide which two you think you can finish and discard the other two that you don't even want to try. All players put their meeple on the northeastern point on the map. This will be marked by a compass. In turn order, you can take three actions. You can take one action twice even. These would be play a movement card, build, upgrade, draw activity cards, retrieve movement cards, or collect money. These actions allow you to do many things. First, play a movement card. Instead of rolling a die and moving, you control your fate with seven movement cards. These will allow you to move about the town, helping you set up your plans of becoming the number one land baron. Each one is only allowed to be played once until you take the retrieve movement cards action and return them all to your hand, so plan accordingly. Now the build action. Now here you get to the heart of the game. The board is split up into four sections. Grass, gravel, dirt, and sand. Depending on where you build will set the cost. You start small and build either a cottage or a shop on the matching spot. Being a resort area, you're building these to attract tourists, so you may be spending money, but when you do, you gain income. There is an income track along the side of the board that tracks the amount of income you get every three rounds, or each quarter. And by the name of it, you should be able to figure out that upgrade allows you to upgrade only your properties and gain higher income from them. Drawing activity cards will allow you to gain special actions. They may allow you to build two businesses on adjacent lots for a discount. They may allow you to move to a certain place on the board to get in a better location to build. Any number of things. Retrieving movement cards. This is something that you need to pay close attention to. Movement on the board is a little tricky. Being a small town in the 19th century, not many streets are that wide, so you can only travel one way on them. Keep your eyes open as to where you want to go and that you can get there. Nothing worse than getting slowed down by one-way streets. Also, during your travels, you will find bird markings, a pier marking, and a lighthouse marking. These all give you special actions, which I will get back to shortly. Finally, you can retrieve money. 
It may seem small at only $3, but sometimes those $3 can come in at the exact moment you need them. Once all players have taken their turn, it is time for the month or um, round to end. Move the lighthouse turn marker and reveal an event card. Event cards are not covered in the first turn, but then on out, something will happen in the town from hurricanes to fires to a war hero opening a new hotel that will affect everything. I mentioned the markings on the street. Bird markings allow you to take a break from the building to watch birds. You will reach into the bag supplied and pull out a bird token. These will add to your points at the end of the game. The peer token allows you to take three activity cards and keep two. And the lighthouse allows you to build anywhere on the board for $5. All of these simple actions on their own make it a simple game to learn. But all these simple actions combined make it a difficult game to master. So come on in. The water's fine here in Cape May. Well, thank you, Scott, for the walkthrough of today's review game, Cape May. As always, we like to give our review games the level-up treatment, the 8-bit breakdown. We're going to look at eight different facets of this game and share our thoughts, starting with bit number one, Scott, art and components. Yes, uh, the art and components are delightful. Delightful. I, I really, really enjoy it. Now, you start off, whenever you're building things, you build a cottage or a shop. Mm -hmm. They're little cardboard tokens. That's it. But whenever you upgrade them to a Victorian house or a business, well, they have these wonderful plastic little houses and businesses that you put on the board. It really makes it wonderful whenever you look at it, like we've just built Cape May. And it gives such a warm feeling to this. The artwork on the board is very nicely done. Mm -hmm. uh, everything is clearly marked. Uh, all the places where you're going to build your houses or your businesses. One-way streets, even though they are an absolute pain, are easy to track and yep. see where things are. Good graphic design, indeed. And I love that you have the different events that down at the bottom that are look like old-time newspaper things. And you can't help but pick them up. And whenever you read them, you want to talk in an old-timey voice there and say <laughs> what happened on the event for this day. Oh, yeah. It really does a great job of bringing the theme to life, putting you back in that time period, making it very, very enjoyable. Yeah, very good components. Uh, phenomenal components, I, I would even say. The, the tiles are nice and thick. The buildings are sturdy. That Victorian looks great. Uh, oh, maples, I know. The maples are laser cut, and they're all different for each player. So I had the, you know, the lady with her hands on her hips wearing the old-timey dress and the big hat. Uh, somebody else had the, the cane, you know, just – Phenomenal little meeples that you have there. I will say the art, the art on the box is phenomenal. And while I was sure that we were in for a treat in the art department, there's not a lot of art in the actual game itself. The, the cards have more graphic design and information on them. They don't have the space for the art. But what is there is, uh, well, I'll use your word, delightful. <laughs> yes, so let's go it, to a theme and immersion. Bit number two. You get it to a point there. I mean, I don't feel like I'm transported completely back to that time period in, in building Cape May, but the little touches that they put in there do make it fun. Like I said, the event cards, whenever you put them out, they're like old-timey newspapers, mm -hmm. and it's a wonderful thing there. Even the pictures that they have on there, whenever a fire breaks out, it's done in like that chrome look, uh, not chrome, I'm sorry, brassy look of old-time 
That's the word I'm looking for. Yes. <laughs> that they put that in there and it just makes it look like it's an old timey thing. Well, you get to see um, your town grow when you put the building, like you said, with the art and components, you know, that does something where you, you start with a, a flat board and that 3D element, you do feel like, hey, look, this is being developed, right? And the amount of times that we would take pictures for this, you put your camera down next to the board and you have your little meeple there looking down the street with all these houses built up. It does kind of transport you to a street, but I never once really felt like I'm back in the 1900s or anything, but it was still an absolutely enjoyable time that I had playing this game. How about the bird spotting? This was a direct tie-in to the town of Cape May, and my first thought was, this is tacked on because they wanted to incorporate birds, but thematically, it does provide a nice way to give us that experience of Cape May while we're strolling around and building it up. Uh, the, the points for having various sets of birds, they incorporate that. There's an opaque bag that you reach in to get your birds, and by the end of it, I really liked it, and I thought it was appropriate in the game. Yeah, it, it was like a nice addition to that. And once again, I was kind of the same idea of, did they just want to add something in there to give more points away? But yeah, it has a nice tie into the history of Cape May. Bit number three, complexity. What did you think about that? Scott, this is like the poster child for a middleweight game. It's really at its core, it's an economy game. You have to, to build buildings and you have to spend money to do that, of course. And they give you some influx of not immediate cash, but income. So building something for $5, it'll give you two per turn early is much better than doing it late in the game, which makes sense. That's about it as far as what you need to understand you know, with the complexity of the game. There are some little things, though, that make this game midweight instead of light. The use of cards for movement the varying costs. Okay, so cards for movement. What do we have going on there? You mentioned in the walkthrough, but I'll reiterate it. It's this could have been a roll and move game. You know, it, mm -hmm. it is a Easily. move your meeple around the map, but instead they give you seven cards, cards numbered one through seven, and you pick which ones to use, and you can, as an action, recall all of them. So you want to move the five and the two, or the the four and the seven. I like that they make you spend money to use the one, the two, the six or the seven. So if you want to move something very precise, like right next to me or really far from me, well, it costs a little bit to do that. And that's where you have a just a tiny bit of added complexity that I think puts it into that, that mid-weight section. I think the addition of the player aid that you have brings down the complexity level quite a bit there. Not making it a simple game, but making your choices easier to figure out. Yeah, you're looking they at that everything, thing regularly. Yeah, you have everything laid out different sections of the board, how much it's going to cost you to build this here or upgrade this in this section. So everything's right there. So you have an ability to take a look at things, plan out your moves in advance and see where you're going to go. It's nothing that is complex to the point that it's going to make it an obtrusive game to play. I like that the upgrade cards had, for the most part, two options. So it's another area where you know, it, the, an upgrade card could just be a one option thing, you know, not a one option, one action thing. And okay, well, that that's very straightforward and simple. But just by putting two options on it, now it's something, okay, so I have to make a decision. 
And then even with the movement, uh, I could use my four card because I have it. But if I use my seven, yeah, it costs me money, but I'm further towards what I want to do next turn. And hey, look, it's a bird spot. There's a lot of little things you have to place value on. Suppose you could make it to that bird spot. Well, that's fine and dandy. If you have two birds, odds are you're going to draw a third. That is different. You want to get different birds, uh, you know, a varied set, if you will, as opposed to the same bird. So it might have, you know, well, it's one more thing that you have to factor in and balance, you know, what's the value of this versus that. Cape May gives us a healthy dose of that. Scott, you're in charge of the rule book for this one. So let's get to bit number four. The floor is yours. The rule book was wonderful. Um, nice big text in there. A lot of examples explaining where things go, what you can do at this point, explaining solo rules great layout. They did a very, very nice job with it going through step one, step two, step three. Very short, succinct, and easy to understand. Now then, the learning curve. Was it easy to grab a hold of and, and get into playing? Oh my goodness, yes. You explained this game in about 10 minutes time, and we were up and running. I think new players are going to see some things that they're familiar with here. An event stack set collection, path-based board movement. So I don't think that it's going to take much for most players to understand the little alterations that they made with this thing, like how profound are the events going to be, you know, how, how impactful will they be, or the ways to move about the town. At its core, it's an action selection economy game that I think most gamers are going to be really comfortable with and not have any issues grokking the game. Bit number six, replayability and variability. Some of the variations of this game, you've got the cards in the action deck, you've got the upgrade cards, you've got your events, end game objectives and roll cards. Uh, like I was the financier, for example. I had to have so many businesses in the uh, in the gravel area of Cape May. I love that while we saw, what, 12 events in our game? Yes. That left a lot of fuel in the tank. That deck was big. We only tapped oh, in yes. a little bit of it. It's going to take a lot of plays before we see all those, huh? Oh, uh, most definitely. There, There's so many things that go on in that deck. So it's, it's definitely ripe for multiple plays. Now, there are variations that you're going to see from game to game, but I don't think that any of them are going to be profound enough for me to say that Cape May is on the higher end of variability. Uh, I think that this stems from the construction costs of the buildings and the benefits that you yield from them, as well as the scoring. That's fixed every game. And part of me kind of wishes that there was a little bit of variation there. It, it might be taking this to a different level of complexity and thus losing the target audience, but... I kind of wish that there were overlays for the player boards that could change the costs and the, the financial benefits of the buildings. Or how about a scoring overlay that could change the building scoring at the end? So one game, Gravel Area, might be really good. And then the next game, the coast is profound. Best yet, how about a deck of common objectives? Like at the beginning of game, uh, put X number of them face up in a pole. And maybe they give you end game bonuses for buildings on the shore. Or an extra point for each bird of a certain type. Uh, just something to... To not only vary up what happens in the game, but to ensure that players are varying their strategy from play to play. It didn't have that, and yet I think this is replayable, evidenced by the fact that I want to get back to it. I know I've played it a lot since I've gotten it. A lot of teaching plays and things like that. And right now I'm kind of cooled off to it a little bit. Not saying, once again, that it's a bad game. It's mm -hmm. just that you played enough times in a row, you're kind of, you've kind of explored a lot of parts of it and you want to let it 
go off, simmer a little bit, and then come back and enjoy the mystery of what you want to do and play that game again. Go in blank. Enjoy it. Enjoy the experience. Enjoy the laughs with the people that you're playing with. That's the main part here with this game, that it really shines. It kind of feels like one of those blue chip games that you take off the shelf every other month. Yes. And it's always on the shelf because it's always going to be coming down every now and then. Mm Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's a great way of putting it. So how about bit number seven? Any downsides for you, Scott? I have kind of reached my limit with it right now with the number of games I've played, so I need to let it set aside and percolate a little bit. Full disclosure, Um, though, you've played this like a dozen times in a week. Yes. Yes, (laughs) I have. (laughs) But it's still enjoyable. I still enjoy putting the buildings out. It looks great whenever it's on the table. I mean, it has a great table presence. What did you think? I kind of said it in the replayability in that the goalposts never move. Uh, The cards that you're given to work with at the beginning of the game are going to alter your strategy a little bit, but there could have been a little bit more added to make each play feel more profoundly different. Uh, We played a four-player game, so we saw more cards than a two- or three-player game, and we did cycle through that action deck. Not the event deck I mentioned earlier. Oh, the event deck, we only saw a small chunk, but the action deck, we saw all of them. Now, there were, like I said, four of us. We saw a lot of those cards, but man, I could see that deck being three times as big as just another way of ensuring that every play you're seeing uh, some differentiation. But that being said, was it fun and who's it for? Bit number eight. I liked Cape May and I tend to like games that have you messing with income as an engine. I like seeing this town grow as I play and feeling like I'm getting more powerful as the game progresses and boy, your opportunities do open up uh, turn after turn. And if you didn't have it already, I would gladly add Cape May to my collection. Who's it for now? If you've ever played a heavy game with your group and you could just tell that it wasn't landing, maybe it was too complex or too unforgiving for some players, Cape May is a good way to walk it back a notch and give something that's a little bit lighter that they're still going to have a meaty experience from, where players are going to have to consider a number of variables and play well in order to win. So I think if you like an economic game, think Power Grid and couple it with some city building, I think Cape May is going to be a hit. What are your thoughts? Well, you I know you think this is fun. <laughs> well, I agree with you whenever you say about this is a great one to pull out with your gaming friends if you don't know exactly where you want to go. This is a, a, a great um, litmus test to play. Hmm. You can play this early on in the night and you get an idea right then and there was this enough for the person, for the people that you're playing with, or was this a little too much for the people you're playing with? It falls really, like you said, just so perfectly right in the middle to find out what kind of games you want to play out from there. It is an enjoyable game. I love this game. As soon as I saw the cover and I saw Kate May, I even told Tim Viernig at Thunderworks Games, I'm in, period. I think I'm going to have to bring this with me to Thanksgiving because my brother-in-law loves Ticket to Ride. I think this is a nice one to get a little bit more and move past that and get into a little bit heavier of a game. And also my wife and and introduce them both to this game and see what they think about it. And I think they're going to enjoy it. And this is going to open up a few more avenues of enjoyment of different types of games for them. Well, Scott, that was the last review of the first year of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. That's Cape May. Well, Scott, we've hit the one-year mark as a podcast, and that means that we have a chance to start doing a look back 
segment. Now, technically, it's a year like next week, but whenever we launched, we did three episodes in the first two weeks to make sure that we got a few episodes out there. So if we want to make sure that moving forward, we can say one year ago today, well, then it makes sense that we have to do this look back today. But how to go about doing it? You and I talked a little bit about how we want to do our lookbacks. We hear other podcasts talk about last year's game, and they typically either say, it was all right, but it didn't stand out, or, oh, it's a great game, but we haven't been able to play it again because we're a podcast. we got to play more things. So you had a brilliant idea on how to approach our lookbacks. What was that? How are we going to do this? Well, it came up with a few questions here. So I think one of the important ones is, do you see a future game day when you're getting together with a bunch of friends? Do you see you bringing this game to the table? That's a big thing there because it has replayability. You want to bring it back. Mm -hmm. If you didn't own this game, would you buy it? Uh, We're putting our money where our mouth is. Exactly. And then would you recommend this game to someone else to play? Okay. Okay. Well, let's do it. One year ago today, we got a chance to go back and take a look at one of our favorite games, Shadows Over Camelot. This is a game for three-day players in which we play as Knights of the Round Table, trying to complete various quests from defeating the Black Knight to recovering the Holy Grail, all while potentially having a traitor in our midst. Mm -hmm. Will you be bringing this table back to a game day in the future? What do you say, Patrick? You just asked me if I'll be bringing this table back to a game day. Yes, I did. I was <laughs> testing you. So I meant to say, do you see a future game day when you're bringing this game to the table? Uh, well, Shadows Over Camelot. This is an old game that we use as our first review. We did this intentionally. Uh, it was kind of by design. We wanted to put that immediate stamp on the idea that we regularly look at games from all eras. So Shadows Over Camelot was the first. Scott, I could see breaking this out for game day. It's medium, maybe even medium light. So I think I get out when there's a casual player or two at the table. And I don't recall ever finishing a game of Shadows and, and being disappointed. It's a game that can hold six or seven or eight players, and it's not a party game, and it's not super light. So, you know, there aren't many strategy games with a hidden trader that can play that many people. Yes, I could foresee getting this back to the table on a game day. What about you? I am really ashamed with myself that I've not gotten this game back to the table sooner. It is a fun game. This is a very approachable game to newer players, which is an amazing thing there. Whenever you think of Mm -hmm. all these things as far as the trader mechanic, the cooperative play, the moving your characters around to different places in order to complete the quests that you need to do. I think that the problem is that I allowed the shimmer of all the new goodness coming out to kind of push this off to the side, which I'm ashamed to say. I need to get this game out, and I definitely see this game coming out soon, thanks to us talking about it. If you didn't own Shadows Over Camelot, would you buy it? So I would say, yes. For me, I would get it. If you have a very limited group of people to play, if you normally play with uh, your wife, your significant other, or anything like that, it's a great game, but it would be a game that would just sit on your shelf, unfortunately, I think, unless you had a big group of people to play. 
You know what? I did own Shadows and I sold it. But it's not because it's uh, not so much because it's competing for the table time, but because it had some value. It's an out of print game and mm-hmm. I needed some money. <laughs> so are we recommending it? I do. I do recommend it. Maybe not at the $80 or $90 price tag that it has right now as it's out of print. I think you get two great games at that price, but price not being an issue. I think it's an easy recommend. What about you? I, yeah, I, I would definitely say so because it has a great theme attached to it. Hey, you're going to play as Knights of the Round Table, and you need to get Excalibur. Oh, and you also have to fight the Black Knight. And by the way, you have to keep the Picts and the Saxons away from the castle while you're doing all this stuff here. And also, you have to find the whole... And by the time you're done, you have so much excitement built up in this that anyone's going to want to play this game. So I would definitely recommend this game because it has such an epic feel to it. There are so many things you can do but it's not one of those things that makes it unapproachable. Hi guys, I'm Andrew Davidson with AsPerMyAbility.com. From Area 51 to UFOs, philosophers, scientists, and literary minds have been plagued with the same timeless, ubiquitous question. Are we alone in the universe? Alien Invasions and Close Encounters is the stuff of Hollywood, with movies like the Oscar-nominated Arrival and the incredibly popular Alien franchise. And yes, I'm skipping over the fourth Indiana Jones movie on purpose because, well, quite frankly, I'm childish and still butthurt over that film. But seeing otherworldly creatures on the big screen, it fills us with awe and excitement. Conspiracy theorist or not, the Earth has had one, just one, documented alien attack on American soil. On Halloween 1938, Orson Welles, Mr. Citizen Kane himself, accompanied by a troupe of talent known as the Mercury Theater on the Air, enacted and performed a realistic, dramatic reenactment of H.G. Wells's 1887 novel, War of the Worlds. The broadcast caused widespread panic across America. Individuals tuned in to something resembling a news report of attacking ships from the sky and the complete destruction of American cities. The public feared for their lives. But why? What was it about the radio dramatization that caused such an uproar across the nation? When you click on the radio during your drive to work in the morning, what do you hear? These days, radio stations do their best to minimize commercial time. Who wants to hear about deals on mattresses and pillows during your morning commute when a killer tune is just what your bitter, nihilistic soul needs to face another bleak and dismal day at the office? As much as people dislike commercials interrupting their tune time, to be honest, it's nothing like it used to be. In the 1930s, and for many, many decades following, radio stations ran either live or pre-recorded commercials almost non-stop. Every two minutes, no matter what program was on, the station would run a commercial. Even news stories were interrupted with live ad readings for things like toothpaste, cigarettes, and spam. President Roosevelt met with his advisors today to discuss the plan to stimulate the economy. He's calling it the New Deal Plan, and it would be a heck of a deal for suffering Americans who are without food and jobs. According to the latest nationwide results, the economy is in the tank. Speaking of economy, 
How about blessing your loved ones at home with an economy-sized set of luggage by the Bartoli Brothers? You'll love the new sleek and slim design on all the Bartoli Brothers' new economy line products. With so many reasons to be depressed, why not cheer up your traveling by traveling in style? Speaking of traveling, here's Roger with the weather. Now, as the Mercury Theater on the Air troupe registered as a drama group, they were granted special permissions by CBS Radio. The reenactment continued for an entire hour, uninterrupted. Not only was that uninterruption unprecedented, but it strengthened the narrative immersion. When the news anchor drops and cuts to an advertisement about Ovaltine, the American public understands. However, if something as devastating and apocalyptic as in an alien invasion and potential end of the world, well, Ovaltine and other such commercials would have to pound sand. The result? Americans lost their minds. People got in their cars, attempting to get out of the densely populated cities. Others shoved their families into fallout shelters for protection. Americans believed that a Martian invasion was devastating major metropolitan areas like New York City. Naturally, the whole arrangement was a goof. Orson Welles wrote and directed the broadcast as a quote-unquote Halloween prank. He had no idea the performance would lead to mass hysteria. In fact, the dramatization kicked off with an announcer stating, The Columbia Broadcasting System and affiliated station present Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the air in The War of the Worlds, by H.G. Wells. However, historians surmise that many listeners may have been listening to the immensely popular The Chase and Sanborn Hour with Edgar Bergen and tuned their dials in just a few moments too late, missing the introduction stating that the following is nothing more than a science fiction radio drama. It just so happens I was a young lad when the Blair Witch Project came out. For those of you who don't know, The Blair Witch Project was the first found footage film, and yes, I'm putting aside the 1980 Italian film Cannibal Holocaust because, uh, quite frankly, I want nothing to do with that film. Blair Witch marketed itself as a real incident caught on tape. The trailers told us it was real. There were fake websites telling us it was real. There were fake interviews with people telling us it was real. In fact, even the actors went underground and were not allowed to do any interviews or press to promote the film. Today, with a million and one found footage films in existence, well, we, we know better. However, back in 1999, not a single movie carried out a promotional campaign the way that the Blair Witch Project did. Orson Welles' radio broadcast was like the Blair Witch Project. All facets of the news got in on the so-called fun. The performance freaked enough people that hundreds of individuals rioted and attacked El Comerico, a local newspaper that participated in the hoax by publishing articles of unidentified flying objects being reported all around the world. During the riot, seven people were killed. That's right, folks. A mere radio performance sent America into such panic that it led to the loss of many, many lives. The ultimate takeaway from Wells' ambitious radio program? Well, fake news kills, I guess. In this case, literally. 
For those listeners interested in hearing a portion or the entire 60-minute broadcast, a link has been provided in the show notes for this episode. War of the Worlds The New Wave is a 2019 combat game created by Dennis Plastinen and published by Gray Fox Games. The game is for two players as it pits one alien player against a human player. Essentially, War of the Worlds is a asymmetrical competitive deck building war game and kudos to the designer for conflating mechanisms and themes not typically seen in many games. Let's take a snapshot look at everything War of the Worlds has to offer. First, there are two factions, aliens and humans. Each faction plays with its own deck of cards, own miniatures, and win condition. This offers replayability as playing each side provides completely new experiences and strategies. Next, the game is entirely competitive and kind of nasty. There's no love lost in War of the Worlds. As a two-player only game, the game places paramount importance on the strategies developed and implemented to wield against their opponent. And lastly, War of the Worlds is a straight-up war game. Unlike, um, let's say, Star Wars Rebellion, where there's so much going on outside of generating armies and smashing them together in combat, War of the Worlds centers strictly around destruction, inflicting damage, and, yeah, smashing your forces together in combat. Nothing else really going on here. The alien player wins by eliminating all civilians, represented by brown cubes, from the board. The human player wins if they can inflict 30 points of damage to the alien ships. It's a race to who could accomplish their objective first. War of the Worlds, the new wave, appeals to individuals searching for a military game that is easy to learn, easy to play, and takes around 30 minutes to complete a game. While the game is simple, it's still rather enjoyable to play. With just a tint of strategy hidden within the gameplay, my friends and I found ourselves playing it repeatedly, you know, switching sides, doing best out of three. War of the Worlds, in my opinion, is quite the hidden gem. Okay, stop, stop, back it up, I can't do this. Let's get to the nitty gritty, okay? War of the Worlds, the new wave, fails on multiple levels. First, the card selection is limited. Plenty of duplicate cards making subsequent games vastly less enjoyable to play. Even with having two distinct factions to try out, the card choices and abilities lose their appeal as the abilities are relatively the same in each faction. I have a card that allows me to heal. You have a card that allows you to heal. They may have different artwork and a different name, but fundamentally, they do the same thing. Second, there is an imbalance in how fast a player can get their engine built and the short, short duration of each game. Every time I play War of the Worlds, it feels like the moment my deck yields results, the game is one or two turns away from being over. This discourages players as you spend the majority of the game working towards a machine that you'll barely get to see run. Third, the combat damage system creates a substantial thematic disconnect. All units, I repeat, all units, spaceships, tanks, buildings, military ships, and regular civilians all take one damage to destroy. One damage. One 
damage. You heard me. One stroke of damage can zap an individual dead, or it can sink an entire destroyer ship. What was the designer thinking? Well, perhaps he wanted the game to be less math-oriented and straightforward, but come on, man. When it takes a player six turns to build a giant ship, it upsets them that their shiny brand spanking new vessel is at the bottom of the Atlantic with one point of damage. I don't particularly appreciate, well, in fact, I absolutely hate how the damage assignment and value are utilized. However, War of the Worlds, a new wave, and it's still quite an enjoyable experience despite the issues. There's a lot to enjoy with the game, and here's why, at the end of the day, I can be completely objective. The game knows what it is, and it doesn't try to be something it's not. It's a simplistic, short-duration war game for beginners. This is why I can objectively see tons of entertainment value, with aliens and humans blowing each other up. What's not to love? I recommend War of the Worlds A New Wave, as an excellent fit for teenagers interested in combat games or siblings looking to square off and fight each other at the dining room table rather than beating the snot out of each other in the backyard. Speaking of, where was this game when I was growing up? My younger brother and I sure could have used a game like War of the Worlds. So give it a shot. Uh, The game, that is. Not beating up your sibling in the backyard. Once again, my name is Andrew Davidson. Thank you for stopping by my academy to level up. I hope I've given you something to think about. Boy, what an academy. Interesting game talk, but even more so. I love hearing the uh, the Orson Welles staged alien invasion and, and the Blair Witch. Scott, did you watch the Blair Witch when it came out? Oh, well, yes. I, I went to go see that, and still that final scene just did me in whenever I saw that. I was absolutely terrified. <laughs> My sister came back back home. She saw it in theater. I, I didn't. You know, I was I was like fifteen then. It didn't have the interest. But she came home and she was like shaking. <laughs> <laughs> you know what did that to me was there was a movie called The Fourth Kind. It was basically Ooh. a found footage film, but it uh, was meant to be a, an alien abduction story. That, that one was pretty creepy. Yes, I I haven't seen it, but I'm familiar with that. But uh, but yeah. This is something thinking that Orson Welles decided to read this story, but update a little bit and absolutely terrified most of the country. I've always heard, heard stories about it, but to hear and to put it into perspective, the exact events that happened, I never knew that they actually prefaced it with, you know, the following mm-hmm. is a reading from and that people just happened to have missed that portion or they were switching over uh, from what do you say? The Chase and Sanborn uh, yes, hour. Yes, yes. Uh-huh. War of the Worlds is definitely one of my favorite things ever. The old George Powell movie is easily in my top ten movies of all time. Yeah? Oh, my gosh. I adore that movie. Every time I see it, it's just like watching it for the first time all over again. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for today's Academy segment. I will put that link in the show notes. Keep your eyes open. Scott, let's move on to the year in review. Let's do it. Adventurers, today's discussion is not going to be a discussion. Today, we're going to talk about the year in review, things that the podcast has been through. We wanted to give you kind of a state of the show and where we potentially see things coming. So, Scott, it is more of a – we're just going to take this opportunity to scratch our own backs, aren't we? 
it's been <laughs> an amazing ride for this first year here. And yeah, I'm looking forward to what's coming up. All right, Scott. Downloads. We have downloads coming in from well over 100 countries. U.S. is the most by far, but second most downloads coming from England. And then Ireland got bumped to third. And this all happened uh, is a result of Senjutsu. I think our most downloaded episode this year was our Senjutsu episode. And that's part because it was after we built a following, but also because that Kickstarter was so big and they made us a social stretch goal. Uh, they're based in England. So I think that's mm-hmm. where England really quickly shot off that list and got into second place. It's wonderful to see where the listeners come from. I would love to know how they find out about us. I mean, it's got to be some just random looking up and finding us. And some of it, I hope, has to be word of mouth. And that really humbles me that people would think highly of us to say, hey, listen to these guys about board games. Thank you all for that. Let's talk some partnerships. We got promo codes from the op and from Mondo. So uh, our Mondo promo code, use promo code L-E-V-E-L-U-P, and they'll give you 10% off your purchase. The op will give you free shipping if you are in the U.S. for using Level Up. All one word is a promo code. We've built excellent relationships with Stonemire, Far Off Games, Stone Sword Games, Dragon Dawn, Thunderworks, Keith and Chip, well, Cape May, for example, and yeah. so many more. So it is nice to, to feel a little bit more like we're uh, a part of the, you know, that side of the community, huh? It, it is such a great thing there. And I know with being on the other side of the microphone, watching the podcasters talk about getting a chance to talk to these people about this and that and the other, now being part of that group, it's an amazing feeling and am very, very proud of what we've done and look forward to doing more of it next year. Speaking of that side of the microphone or that side of the hobby, we have had 20 guests on the show wow. in year number one. That's a, that's pretty solid for a year. I mean, if you stop and think, we're supposed to come out every two weeks, but we've done, this is episode 39, so how many extra <laughs> shows we've done and the amount of people that no idea how to do that math. Wow. All I know is that it's been great and it's been great to meet so many fabulous people. Episodes, Scott, we've talked about 162 individual games in either short form or feature review this year. Shut up. Scott, this year saw three excellent meetups with big turnout. Thank you so much to Black Lotus Pizza and to The Vault. Now, I know we're getting a little local here, but uh, we do want to give a shout out there. Also, we have plans uh, this year, hopefully for a wider mile radius for our upcoming meetups. And hey, listeners, you can invite us if you have somewhere in your area that you think or you you own a, a pizza shop, a coffee shop, a gaming store, and you think, hey, it'd be nice to have these guys get a nice big crowd. I mean, we pack Black Lotus mm-hmm. pizza. They, we couldn't squeeze another table in there. Right. And and it was great. And we want to expand our area that we can do, but within reason. We're just two guys talking on a microphone here, really. Scott, we got quoted on over a dozen Kickstarters to this point. And frankly, I like that number. You know, I, I think that listeners know that I mean, we've all been there where you look at one big Kickstarter and there's that guy. You look at the next one. Hey, that guy played that one too. You look at the next one. Oh, he's endorsing that one too. And I tell you what, we endorsed Kickstarters that we got to play several times and we loved enough and we loved it even more that we got back to it. I think if you see our name on a Kickstarter, I think listeners know that means we're probably a backer. 
it means that we're not advertising ourselves. We're not just slapping our name to make sure it gets out there, gets out there, gets out there. It doesn't mean that we're compensated in any way because mm-hmm. trust us, we're not. But I like to think that it means that when we endorse the Kickstarter, it has some meaning. And I really like that. We look at it as a badge of honor in a way that they thought enough of us talking to them to take our opinion and hopefully help other people know that it's a good game and something that would be great in their collection. I think one of the major additions this year, maybe the biggest, is the addition of the contributors Josh and Andrew for Lost Loot and the Academy. I look forward to it every time, and we've had tremendous feedback on their contributions. It's great because you can hear and learn different things about a game where we just don't have the time to go through playing all the games, doing all this stuff, and having their insight and a different view into things. It's wonderful to have that added to the show here and make it that much more special so thank you thank you to josh and andrew yes i can't express enough how glad we are to have you on board most definitely hey adventurers this is james and paul from stone sword games and this year we leveled up with the level up board game podcast congrats on the year guys it was awesome (laughs) bye Well, Scott, not counting games that we did not both play together, so something like Dog Park I didn't add on the list. We had 31 games that we together reviewed and played in the first year in Season 1 of Level Up. Now we're going to have the opportunity, you and I, to break it down. We like to, every 10 episodes, say, well, here are the top 5 of the games that we reviewed. Now we're going to take the whole Season 1, all those games, and we're going to say, this is my definitive top 10 of the yes. games that we reviewed this year. So Scott, how about we do a uh, 10 to 1? We'll we'll start with number 10, we'll go to number 1, and I feel like you always lead off. So I'm going to I'm going to start so that you can have the final say, the final number 1. And you know what, if we have uh, if we have overlap, so be it. We'll both get to uh to talk and BS about the same game a couple of times. That we can sounds that, good right? to me. All right, we'll kick it off. Scott, my number 10 is Dune Imperium. Here we've got a game that blends worker placement and deck building oh so beautifully. I love that there's a number of ways that you can pursue a win. I did say, and I do still think that this might have a shelf life. Like I might not be itching to play it five years from now, but it keeps climbing up those rankings on BGG. So for now, I'm thrilled and maybe it'll surprise me and it'll be an evergreen uh, half a decade from now. We'll see. What's your number 10? My number 10 is Yido, and this was a game that you just raved over, and I'm, I was a little bit nervous about it. I didn't know what to expect from it. I think in my mind, I had a different idea of what Yido was going to be like. I was enthralled immediately, placing your characters, keeping an idea where the constable is, trying to fill the recipes of the cards that you have. So many things going on, but it was never overwhelming, and it was enjoyable every second of that game there. Really, really enjoyed it. Always happy to play that game. My number nine, Deliverance. I had the pleasure of playing this with the game's designer, Andrew Lowen. We did a side quest for it way back in 18. I think late pledges are still available. Andrew managed to capture a skirmish dungeon crawl where you feel your character getting stronger and stronger, gearing up to face that final boss. Man, I backed this Kickstarter, and I am stoked for when it shows up. I'm really looking forward to this one. What's your number nine? 
My number nine is Grand Austria Hotel. This one took me back to the reason why I got into Euro games on a whole. Just the look of it, the dice placement, dice drafting, how you're playing that game, putting people in their rooms, getting people into the restaurant, all these little things. It was just so so much fun to go back to what I want to say, like the golden age of Euro games, whenever things just started getting big and started feeling a little more settled with Euro games. So Grand Austria Hotel is my number nine. Boy, that one found a way to capture the throwback feeling without feeling dated. Yes, yes. My number eight is Senjutsu, and this one had me turning the corner on skirmish-style games, I think. Uh, that said, I think what hooked me was the card play. The minis on the board, yeah, I mean, first of all, I'm expecting these things to be gorgeous. All their renderings look amazing, but they simply add an element of space to the game in, in relation to each other. We got a stunning production outmatched only by the tense, engaging gameplay. I think we both backed it, and because of that, I'm looking forward to maybe trying to set up a little tournament with Senjutsu, my number eight. Just missed my top 10 by coming in at number 11, but I agree with you completely on that. The whole idea of the battling going on, the card play, the beautiful miniatures, yes, I backed it. I cannot wait for that to come in. My number eight was Lost Ruins of Arnak. This was a game that full puts in the whole idea of an Indiana Jones type of adventure with getting your supplies, finding different monuments, different jewels, searching for information on the maps and everything else to find these lost treasures, battling guardians of the treasures. It, it's just such a fun, like, serial type of uh like a cliffhanger type of movie you would oh, expect yeah. to hear indiana jones playing in the background great time with this one so lost ruins of arnak was my number eight number seven for me is beyond the sun this game's a little higher than medium weight for certain it has an element of discovery that keeps me coming back what with that tech track I think I said at the time that I'd played it more than any other game that we'd reviewed to that point, and it was probably my most played game in 2021. It is a gripping game that anytime I finish, I want to start again. My number seven's Beyond the Sun. Yes, thoroughly enjoyable. That was another one that just missed the top 10 there as well. But my number seven was Brass. Now, this ah. one here has all sorts of wonderful, wonderful things in it as far as your economy, buying things, shipping things, so much stuff going on in this game. It's one when your mind is just constantly moving during this game. You're constantly looking at where do I want to go next? Do I have the money to do that? How can I get the money? Who's going to take that spot there? Just so much fun. I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed my time of playing. I'm sorry. Brass, Lancashire. My number six, Lost Ruins of Arnak. So we made it a point not to compare Arnak and Dune because literally everyone did that. Uh, and I will point it out now because you'll notice that Dune was my number 10 versus Arnak at six. And uh, honestly, I think it's simply a matter of liking the theme a pinch more because as we mentioned in our Dune episode, I really don't know much about Dune. Couple that with the ways that Arnak entices you, and Dune doesn't do this as much. Arnak entices you to squeeze a few more actions out of a turn. 
When the tank is empty and running on fumes, Arnak challenges you to see how far you can go with those fumes. Mm-hmm. I liked that puzzle here, and I found it very rewarding. Good choice, good choice. What you got at number six, Scott? My number six was one that you really talked me into playing there, and you taught me how to play. Carnegie. There is a lot going on in this game here. I mean, this is not one that you just sit down and like, this will be simple enough. No, you are taking care of building your office building, filling those offices with employees that are going to go out and sell things. They're going to take care of building things. They're going to take care of your charities that you're covering. Well, you need to make sure that you cover the charities that you want. You need to make sure that you have workers and salespeople in those cities across the country. Oh, by the way, you need to upgrade what kind of things you can build in those cities. I'm nowhere near on how to master this game, but it's one that I go back to and still try and figure out what's the most efficient way of playing this. I mean, wow, there's so much in this game. I didn't think I would ever figure out how to play it. But once I did, it was well, well worth that time. Now, you're number five. Number five for me is Yido. And there might be some bias here as I have the super deluxe version now, but I find myself always considering Yido when it comes time for game day. You got a work replacement game with a little bit of set collection, some take that. It just works for me every time. I don't think most folks would put it higher than many of the games that we reviewed this year, but at the end of the day, I judge games based on how excited I am to play them again. And Yido's always at the top of that list. What's your number five, Scott? Everdell. It's absolutely adorable forest creatures building villages. The table presence that it has with that giant tree and all the cards and the little berries and the stones and the amber pieces, all this stuff just makes for a delightful game. They have expansions out the wazoo. I know we have one. We still need to get. We're we're holding off till we do our look back. That's a good way of doing it. So many little things you can do with the cards and stuff and building it. And the artwork is second to none. They do a wonderful, wonderful job of making this world of Everdell. Number four. What's that, Patrick? For me, it's Tapestry. Uh, Similar to Yido in that I regularly want to break it out on game day. We like to talk about games that provide you with the same rules and the same objectives every time, but with variations in how you have to approach them. And Tapestry does that with just the right amount of asymmetry from game to game. We got the Arts and Architecture expansion we talked with Jamie last week, so I'm antsy to get this back to the table again with uh, with a little bit more flavor in it. My number four was Tapestry. How about you? My number four was one I know that you're not a big fan of, but I had to put Century Spice Road. Mm-hmm. There is something with a game that you can just pull out, you don't have to think about it, and you just play. The enjoyment I get out of that, out of changing the different spices to different spices and cashing them in for different things, there's something about that that just makes me feel good. Really, I can't say enough about it. It's thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyable. Century Spice Road. My number three is Eschaton, and this is kind of my dark horse pick here because it's arguably the least known game that we reviewed last year, but at the end of the day, it gets me all wide-eyed and tingly. You got deck building (laughs) with a board, and it's almost always going to be a hit. The perceived flaws of the game, namely the warring aggression and muted color palette, those are both benefits in my book, and I can't imagine Eschaton ever leaving my collection, so it's my number three. How about you? 
Great choice, great choice. My number three is our look back, Shadows Over Camelot. Now, I granted, I did say that it's one that I'm ashamed that I haven't gotten back to the table lately, but whenever we did it, I stopped and I started thinking about the games that I played of it before and how much fun I had out of it and wanting to make sure that you had all the white swords lined up on the round table, not the black ones, and getting those card draws exactly where you needed them to be. Of course, I mean, hey, I'm a sucker for King Arthur stuff as well. So Shadows Over Camelot checked all those boxes and was a wonderful, wonderful experience playing that. So Shadows Over Camelot is my number three. For number two, I have Brass Birmingham. And this could be either Brass, really, but Birmingham got the official review, so I put it here. It's a thinker's game, isn't it? And it can be mean in oh-so-subtle ways. It features the importance of thinking a turn or two ahead. And it features the importance of the impact of turn order, which can be manipulated. It makes me happy every time I get to teach Brass Birmingham to, to someone. I'll gladly play it anytime, gladly teach it anytime. And that's why of all the games that we reviewed this past year, Brass Birmingham is my number two. What do you got, Scott? Well, my number two was your number 10, and that is Dune Imperium. I was very, very hesitant on this because it came out and it was just one of those things where, uh, well, they just threw the IP on top of some other game. But boy, I tell you what, getting into that gameplay, and I am a fan of Dune, so seeing the Fremen and the Spacing Guild and the Bene Gesserit and all that stuff, it just made everything gel perfectly for me. There's not a time that I don't enjoy this and strategically i'm thinking of how to get people into my bunkers and get ready for a big battle but then i'm like well wait no let's get sneaky and go in with the emperor i've yet to get tired of playing this game it will constantly be coming back to my table dune imperium is my number two now then for the moment we all been waiting for number one patrick what do you have my personal favorite, and in my humble opinion, the best game that we reviewed this past year was Twilight Imperium. Good night, folks. Edition. I mean, we all saw this coming, so there's not much to add to what I've said in the past. TI is a diplomatic, politicking game that can see players come to fisticuffs, but never actually require it. Decisions that you make at lunchtime are going to have effects that you're going to feel at dinner time. You've got 24 different races, you've got variable system setups, you've got tech paths, other players, and agendas that are going to assure that no two games are ever the same. TI is my favorite game, and it's likely going to stay as such until the next Twilight Imperium comes out, assuming everything's eventual. My number one game that we reviewed this year, Twilight Imperium 4th Edition. Scott, we're on the edge of our seats. My number one has got to be Tapestry. Whenever you introduced me to this game, I'd heard people say, eh, they didn't really care for it. And I went into it kind of like, I'm probably not going to like this. I adored this game. You've got so many decisions. And then your decisions are based on what, not only what you want to do, but what your opponent is doing. And you need to keep an eye on everything so closely it's one of those ones that are always in the back of my mind because I love the components to that game, the look of the game, the decisions you make. 
really, it, it was such a wonderful, wonderful experience playing Tapestry. So that is why it's my number one. Scott, it is kind of nice to have a look at those top 10. I, I did a little bit of extra math since I had both of ours uh, crossover in the top 10, Tapestry, Dune, Brass, Arnak and Yido, and for what it's worth, if we were to compile our list together and divide by two, so if I put you put Tapestry at uh, number one, and I think I put mm-hmm. it at number four, so if we combine that, that gives five divided by two people, that would give it a ranked score of two point five. If we went by uh, okay, let's combine our scores. That's actually the order of our favorite games: Tapestry, then Dune, then Brass, then Arnak, yeah. then Yido. How about that? Yeah. Oh, actually, I think it's Tapestry, Brass, Dune, whatever. The biggest differences, you had Century Spice Road at number four versus me, I put it at number 30. Mm -hmm. Twilight Imperium, I had at number one versus you had it at number 18. And Shadows Over Camelot had a little bit of separation. You had it as your number three, and I had it at 18. Aside from that, most of our picks were pretty well synchronized. Mm Mm-hmm. Near the bottom for both of us. We don't want to pick on any games, but it should be noted. Listeners want to find out what games to get, what we liked and whatnot. Near the bottom for both of us, Puerto Rico, Micro Macro, and Awkward Guests. Fun little introspective. Yeah, it, it was. It was a good time to take a look back at what we've done and kind of make a list of games I want to get back to the table here the next time we get a chance to play. Scott, we're getting a little long in the tooth here. We got to wrap things up, and we got to do it the way that we always do. How we leveled up since we last spoke. Floor is yours. I think the level up here that I had was being part of the podcast. This has been a wonderful year of expanding my horizons on different games to play, the ability to play games, the introductions to people I never would have had a chance to meet before. It has been truly a remarkable experience, and I got to thank you for bringing me along on this trip here and being a co-pilot to you on this. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm not bringing you, you you know more about games than I do. (laughs) I don't know about that, but. You're the wily old vet. Oh, but uh, but yes, it has been a truly tremendous experience, and I look forward to the next year. Yeah, I put the same thing. One year of level up. Thank you so much to our listeners for uh, for joining us, uh, for for hearing what we have to say, and sharing in the excitement of games, responding to posts, joining the guild. You know, just being a part of the ride for us. It's uh, it's kind of nice to sort of see the community build and and grow, and uh, hopefully that continues uh, as season two starts in our next episode. That it does, Scott. You got a end of season one sign off. It's never too late to turn around and just be nice to somebody. Be the reason someone smiles today. That's your goal for the day. You know, we're retiring that for season two. (laughs) We'll come up with new words of wisdom. I'll see you, Scott. Okay, take care, Patrick. Take care, everyone. Thank you so much for joining this adventure of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. We encourage all adventurers to check out our website at levelupgamepodcast.com. There you can submit your thoughts and audio to be used in a future episode. Please consider rating us on iTunes. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and join the Board Game Geek Guild, Guild 3722. Music for the podcast provided by Adam Haynes. Learn more at adamhainesmusic.com. And remember, you can spend another night on the sofa, or you can get some friends together, get some adventures on the table, and level up.